Because what we understand is that we are to be characterized not by hatred and animosity and divisiveness. Rather, we know that all people are made in the image of God, and thus all people have value, and thus we are to show, that was like a whistle there, not actually sure how I did that, but we're to show in our very actions the love that we have for one another, the beauty of the diversity within humanity. And so, uh, as we look at God's word, we're going to say with regard to, to what Judge Leon Bazil said, he's 100% wrong when he said that God intended people of different races to be separate from one another. For when we come into God's word, what is it that we see? Even the verse that we read up here earlier that Sandra read during the worship from Galatians, we see that whether you're Jew, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, people of all different cultures, races, ethnicities, and social ranks, in Christ, we are joined as one people held together by the blood of Christ for the glory of God. We see that the one thing that actually can bring people of different of different races, of all different uh, diversities, whether it's political, sexual, anything, the one thing that brings people together is the gospel. And so we're going to look at what does that look like today. And of course, as we go on to Revelation, to the end of the book, we see that in the end, the new heavens and new earth will be characterized with a people of all tribes, tongues, nations, and languages coming as one people around the throne of God, praising God living in peace and unity with one another. And so the, the fact that there are people of different color is not ever meant to be a thing of separation. But rather, what it is, it's going to prove the very glory of God, that He alone is what can bring together where the world separates, He brings together what the world cannot for His glory and for our good. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to be in a very familiar passage, which many of you know, titled The Good Samaritan. It's in Luke chapter 10, and I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand as we read this. Here at Timberline, we stand at the reading of God's Word. We do this because we believe God's Word comes with its full authority. It's inspired by the Spirit. It's an, it is inerrant, meaning without error, and it's for the purpose of equipping, for the purpose of training, for the purpose of conforming us more into the image of Jesus Christ. So here we go, verse 25. And behold... A lawyer stood, stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to them, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let's pray. 
Our Father, I pray that your spirit today through your word would do a great work in our hearts. I pray that we would be moved through your spirit, that we would increasingly love one another, that we would desire to to love those who are different from us, love those who are different economic statuses than us, a different race than we are. I pray that we as a church would demonstrate your love and your grace and your mercy to all people. I pray that we as a church would be a picture of what revelation looks like, where we are a people of different tribes and nations, languages coming together for your glory. I pray that we would grow in our heart and our desire and our love to have compassion on other people. That we would not look at our comfort and cost and convenience, but we would set those aside for the sake of living as you have. The fact that you left heaven, came to earth, that you would die on a cross so that we could be saved, and now your spirit dwells within us. May we live as you have demonstrated before us. Lord, I pray that as we come into your word that this this passage does not become a checklist for us, but we see that, God, you are calling us to repentance. You are calling us for heart transformation. And, Lord, because of the culture we live in, because we wrestle with sin, we all struggle with loving those who are different than us. We all struggle with having compassion. We all struggle with loving those who have different views than we do. Lord, I pray that you would expose those sins today and draw us to repentance. Lord, conform us more into your image this morning. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So our text, it begins with a conversation between a lawyer and Jesus. Now, who is a lawyer? A Jewish lawyer would be an expert in God's law. They would have much of the Old Testament memorized. They would spend their days studying God's word. They would spend their days within the temple uh, teaching God's word. And so this lawyer, he comes to Jesus and asks a very important question. What must I do to inherit, inherit eternal life? Now we know the lawyer is not genuine in his question, for Luke tells us he comes to test Jesus. But just because he's not genuine, let's not lose the importance of this question. There is no more important question than what must I do to have eternal life? If there is eternal life, which according to God's word, we see that there is, how do we, how do we earn that? How do we gain that? How do we, how do we possess that? Now, the lawyer's question, though, it does reveal a mindset ingrained within humanity. And this brings us to our first point. Because of sin, we think we can obtain salvation through works. The lawyer is asking, how is it that I have assurance of salvation? What do I need to do in order to be saved? The lawyer believes that eternal life is something that can be achieved by human effort just as a just as one earns a paycheck by going to work surely we can uh, we can earn eternal life by doing whatever it is required but notice how jesus responds verse 26 what is written in the law in other words what does the bible say remember last week we we're in psalm 19 in Psalm 19, it talks about God's law. And God's law is a way of, of either summarizing the entire Old Testament or looking at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books, 
not just the Ten Commandments, but a way of, of referring to the first five books, the Pentateuch. So either the whole Old Testament or particularly a few books in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is saying, what does the Bible say? And I just want you to think, that's a good question. And that is what we need to be asking on a regular basis. What does the Bible say? When we come into faith and politics, when we come into racism, when we come into what the Bible says about sexual orientations and all these other things that are being wrestled around in our culture, what does the Bible say? What do you think about it? If you're a Christian, we need to know this. If you're a parent, I would say even more so you need to know this. I mean, think about it. Your kids come home. They're struggling with anger. What does the Bible say? They're struggling with a bully at school. What does the Bible say? They're, they're struggling with understanding the world is unfair. Well, what does the Bible say? Maybe pain and suffering and death, they're beginning to see and experience. Well, what does the Bible say about these things? We're having an inordinate desire for stuff. Our kids definitely have that as they're growing and becoming more aware of things, just as we struggle with the lust of possessions at times. Well, what does the Bible say about possessions and about how we're to think of them? This is a question that we need to regularly be asking ourselves. Spouses, we need to ask ourselves. What does the Bible say about marriage? Am I having patience with one another and serving with one another? About parenting, about politics, about sex, about racism. All of these things, we can come and say, what does the Bible say? And it will give us the foundation for how we are to think and act. So the lawyer responds by quoting two Old Testament passages from the Pentateuch, from those first five books. The first one he quotes is from Deuteronomy 6.5, which this would be uh, called the Shema. It would be a text that every Jewish person would know and have memorized. And he says, well, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he quickly goes over to Leviticus 19.18, one of our favorite books that we read all the time. Which if you're doing one of those Bible reading plans, you'll probably be in it pretty soon. Um... And we'll be preaching through this next year. Uh, and he quotes Leviticus 19.18 that says, We are to love our neighbor as ourselves." So notice what Jesus now says in response. Verse 28, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now we're going to return later to what the actual response of the lawyer should have been at this moment. And what our response should be when Jesus says that. But what we see at the moment is that Jesus' words prompt another question from the lawyer. Well, who's my neighbor? Now, just as the lawyer's first question revealed something about humanity, we believe that we can earn our salvation through our own works. So his second question also reveals something about humanity. Because of sin, we naturally seek to justify ourselves. Notice why the lawyer asked this question. It tells us in the text. He wants to justify himself. So what does that mean? What does it mean he wants to justify himself? Well, if we're going to earn our salvation through our works, then we need to make sure we can actually do what is required, right? I mean, that, that's, that's understandable, right? If, if we have to earn it, well, then we, we need to make sure we can actually walk that path. We can actually do what it is that's required. Therefore, we need to figure out who's my neighbor because surely it's not that we love everyone. That would be way too high. That's too high of a standard. That cannot be what it is. Therefore, we need to figure out, well, who are the people that we love, who are we don't love? So the underlying assumption of this question is, there has to be people I'm not supposed to care for. 
There has to be. Because there's no way it's possible otherwise. Now I want you to think about, we do this also, where we begin to water down the commands of Scripture. You see, he's trying to make the commands of Scripture manageable, or to say it this way, rather than being conformed to God's Word, he's saying, I want God's Word to be conformed to me, and who I am, and what it is that I'm able to do. Think about the ways that we do this. We justify our anger and our lack of patience by blaming others. Well, this person did this, so obviously it was okay that I responded this way. We justify our lack of reading God's Word because we say, well, I'm busy. I don't simply have time. I'm not really a reader. We, lack, we, we justify our lack of memorizing God's Word by saying, well, I, I'm not good at that. And yet we often have songs memorized. We often have uh, sports statistics and other things memorized. And again, we're all going to have different abilities here. We justify our lack of hospitality and evangelism, and evangelism by saying things like, I don't really have those gifts, even though God's word says that all believers are to do these things. And yes, certain, certain individuals might be more gifted than others, but we just simply will hide behind, well, I know I'm not gifted, therefore I, I don't do that. That's for other Christians. Now, one of the most heinous ways we water down God's word is by the very drawing of lines about who is my neighbor and trying to figure out who we do who we are not to love who we're not to care for now in the first century common tradition was the neighbor of a jew is a jew and if you're not a jew then you're not a neighbor that was the common thought pattern that was there it was in the oral tradition that was passed down and in our today and in our culture today we see very similar things well, if they don't look like us, if they don't act like us, if they're not of the same social status us, then we are, are not neighbors. We're seeing racial and ethnic divisions drawn, but we also see lines being drawn religiously, socially, economically, politically, sexually. And what we're seeing today is that no longer can we even be divided on issues like politics. Rather, if we have a difference of opinion, then we're actually at war with one another. We view each other as enemies. Not as people of different opinions, but as people who are actually opposed to one another, and we believe that what they are thinking is actually harmful, and therefore it's okay to resist, even physically resist. And we're seeing that happen more and more across the United States. In fact, on Friday, uh, I, I was at the coffee shop writing this sermon and thinking through it, and right next to me, there's some guys who are there every, every morning that I'm there, which means they're there a lot. Uh, and, and there are a group of guys, and they're beginning to talk about the homeless situation here in Olympia. Now, to be clear, when we start talking about social issues, <clears throat> like homelessness and, and poverty, those are complex issues. Those are difficult issues on, on how we go about them. There's no clear answers on the best way or how to go about it. But as I was beginning to listen to this particular situation, uh, or this conversation that these men were having, it became clear that at least in this conversation, their primary concern with the homeless population was what it was doing to them and the inconveniences it was doing to them, how it will hurt their um, value of their houses, how it will affect their lifestyle, how it affects uh, the scenery around us. And their solution was, how do we just move them? How do we get rid of them? How do we become 
done with them. And it was clear that they were answering the question, who is my neighbor? And it was clear, it's not the homeless. These are not my neighbors from that conversation. And I, I, I'm emphasizing that conversation because they, they might have other conversations where it's different. Perhaps they were communicating it this way at, at one time, but I, I think it was definitely revealing the heart patterns that they were having. And I've heard many people in church and outside of church talk very similarly about the homeless. So now where we're at in the story is, is now Jesus is going to move to a parable. Now we must understand why we're going to the parable. He's giving this parable in response to the fact the lawyer knows the right answer and that he's going to limit the scope of who we're to love. We have to see it. The reason the parable is there, he knows what the Bible says, and yet he wants to narrow it down to a very palatable, very manageable way. And so we have the story of this parable where it begins with a Jewish guy going down the road to Jericho. It's about 16 miles road. It's about 16 miles long. It's very steep. There's lots of turns. There's lots of caves on it where, where thieves wait, uh, lie in wait to attack to rob, to sometimes kill people. And we see that a Jewish guy is on this road where he is beat up, he is robbed, and he's left for dead. Now, most people would travel in groups to avoid this happening. This particular person didn't. Now, next we have three people who are going to come by this person. The first two are the priest and the Levite. Now, these are, are Jewish men who would be considered religious elites. They would work within the temple, they would study God's word. They would teach others the truths of God's word. They would be viewed as very pious and very righteous. If this was present day, these would be people who would say, well, wow, they're the elders of the church. Man, they're always teaching. They're there um, not only on Sunday, but they're there throughout the week studying. They're always meeting with people, always in God's word, always trying to be an example to others in what the word of God says. And yet what we see is that when their fellow brother is hurt, they show no love, no mercy, no compassion. In fact, by saying they walked by the other side, it indicates they walked on the other side of the road. They, they moved as far away from this person as they possibly could so as not to be close to them, not to associate with them, not to in any way mingle with this person who is hurt. Now, if you look at commentaries, if you listen to many sermons, many people will give their reasons for why they have demonstrated a lack of mercy and say, well, they, you know, because of, un, because of laws of purity and uncleanness. Now, we could go down that line, that line of thought, but I think even more helpful, we realize the text gives us no reason. It does not tell us why, which I think is helpful. Because it doesn't give us a specific reason why they don't, it leaves it to cover all reasons why we don't. It makes the application even more broad for us. It's not just because of purity laws or ceremonial laws. It's for whatever law they believed their comfort, their cost that it would take to, to, to take care of this person, the convenience that it would affect them, all of those things was too much. So for whatever reason, they said, I'm not doing that. I'm not willing to engage with this person. I'm not willing to help with this person. So we could say it's for cost, comfort, convenience. We could simply say it's obvious they lack compassion and love. 
For when the Samaritan comes, we're told specifically, he has compassion, which is why he does what he does. But for these people, they have no compassion. Now think about it. These are the faithful Sunday worshipers. And yet with all their religious knowledge and with all their religious activity, they are worthless to the person who is in need. None of their religious practices have produced a love for someone else. Their primary concern was their their selves. Their religiosity only served to insulate and elevate themselves. It's when we understand that this was the climate of, of of Jewish religion at this moment, why Jesus spoke so harshly to the Pharisees and to the scribes. I mean, think about it. I have it up here, Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 to 33. Here's the text, and and this is one of Jesus' more pointed times, but yet it's very characteristic of, of what he would say to the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs. Now think about that. What's in a tomb? Dead bones. You simply, you're a really pretty coffin. He says, outwardly you appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleannesses. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, Well, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up. Then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Now it doesn't get much more harsh and straightforward than that. He says all of your religiosity is simply the kindling that will set you afire in hell for all of life, for all of eternity. If our, if our religiosity If our study of God's word is not moving us towards a greater compassion, towards the greatest love for others, then it's simply kindling the fires of hell. That is Jesus' point here when he's looking at people who are very religious and yet they do not love one another. And so now we come to the Samaritan. And notice when we come to the Samaritan, everything slows down in the text. One verse is given to the, to the priest in verse 31. One verse is given to the priest, or to the Levite in verse 32. Three verses are given to the Samaritan. It all slows down the momentum of the text here, drawing us in to each detail of the story. Now, who are the Samaritans? Well, back in 722 B.C., we have Israel is a divided kingdom. Israel is the northern kingdom made up of ten tribes. Then we have the southern kingdom, which is made up of Judah. And so the, uh, the kingdoms are divided. Assyria comes and destroys the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, and takes them into captivity. The, the Jews then intermarry with the Samaritans and other Gentiles. Thus, they are called Samaritans. They are a mixed race. They're no longer pure ethnic Jews. They are mixed. And thus, the Jews hate them. They're no longer pure They're no longer God's holy people as they have 
define themselves, but rather they're intermingled. Racism is a very uh, pointed and very uh, present topic in the first century. And so what we have is the Jews hate Samaritans. Samaritans hate Jews. Why? Because of race, because of ethnicity. So what, uh, what we see here, though, is that the Samaritan, unlike the religious elites, he's the one who stops and helps the man. Look at verse 33. He had compassion on this man. Now, there's some people who say, wow, I really love certain people, but they don't do anything about it. Here we see the compassion, which is this word for talking about the the inward intestines of, of the person, moves him that he would affect, that he would bring about change, that he would be involved. It's not words only, but this compassion that he has is the compassion that leads him to love and to help those who are around him. And so what we read is he, bind, he binds his wounds, he cares for him, he takes him to the inn, he pays for all of his medical bills and says, whatever other bills he has, don't worry, I'll pay for it when, uh, when I come back. So rather than thinking of convenience, rather than thinking of his comforts or the cost to himself, he simply helps this person. He lays all of those things aside, which surely are the reasons for why the priest and Levite do not help. You see, the Samaritan didn't see an enemy or an obstacle, or a Jew who was injured. Rather, he saw a man who was made in the image of God, and he needed help. And therefore, he had compassion, and therefore, he cared for them. Now, notice in verse 36, Jesus now asks his last question. But, but notice this question is different from the one the lawyer asked. Jesus transforms the lawyer's question from, who is my neighbor, to, am I a neighbor? You see, the point is not to figure out who is our neighbor? Like, who is it that I'm supposed to love? And if you are my neighbor, or if you are the people that I'm wondering about, I go, well, is it just the left side? Is it just the front three rows of the left side? It's about not trying to find who I'm supposed to be a neighbor to, or who is my neighbor, but rather that I am to be a neighbor of all those I come in need, of all those who I come to encounter. Now, in David Platt's book, um, which I read not too long ago. It's, it's his latest book called Something Needs to Change. I encourage you, it's a great book. Just brings up a lot of questions about our faith and about how we're engaging in this world. Uh, so he wrote actually about this text, and he said, now we must understand, this is not a text about just overcoming prejudice. If that was the point, then it could easily have been the Samaritan was hurt and the Jew simply was to help him. And then the, the moral of the story would be, okay, look, guys, I know that we, we don't really like the Samaritans, but we need to help them anyway. Overcome your prejudice. But that's not the point of the story. So what is the point? Well, first and foremost, the parable is about exposing the depravity of our wicked, sinful hearts. That's the point of the story. That's what he's driving us to. In our sin, we're to see ourselves as no different from the Levite and the priest. We, we serve certain people, but we don't serve other people. Our acts of compassion are based upon our comfort, based upon our convenience, based upon what it costs us. Because of sin, I need to figure out who my neighbor is because there's a lot of people I don't want to serve. Now think about that. If we're honest with ourselves, is that not true? There's a lot of people I don't want to serve. And my neighbor is certainly not the guy next to me who, who is of a different religion 
We might say, my neighbor is certainly not the transgender co-worker. My neighbor is not the person of a different skin color. My neighbor is not the homeless. My neighbor is not the person of a different political bent. <clears throat> and surely my neighbor is not the brazen atheist who's always at the coffee shop. You see, the point of the story is, if we're to have eternal life, then we're called to love God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that we're called to be a neighbor to all that we encounter. We're called to love those who are around us. <clears throat> but that's the problem. We don't want to love those who are around us. We don't want to love people when it gets to a certain point of difficulty, of ickiness, of complexity. I don't want to serve those who are different. I don't want to be around those who make me uncomfortable. I don't want to serve the person who's politically or religiously or racially against me. I don't want to help those who can't help themselves. I don't want to help those who keep making bad choices. See, what Jesus has done is he's, real, he's revealed the depravity of our hurt. So now to go back to verse 28. How should the lawyer have responded when Jesus says, you answered correctly, go and do it? He should have responded by getting on his knees and saying, I, I can't do this. This is way too high of a calling. He should have confessed his sin and said, I need help. By your grace, Jesus, help me. That would have been the response. You see, there's a wrong way to read the Bible. And the wrong way to read the Bible is if when we read the Bible, we feel encouraged in ourselves to go and accomplish it, to tackle it, that we can do all that God calls us to do in our own strength. That is never what the Bible is meant to lead us to. Rather, all the commands of the Bible are meant to lead us to depending upon God's grace all the more and us saying, I can't do this. I'm not sufficient to do this. I don't have enough in me to be able to do this. And if I'm to love all those whom I encounter, then I surely need a new heart because my heart doesn't want to do that. <clears throat> Which is what the parable leads us to. The next point is the parable reveals our need for a new heart filled with the love of God. That's where he's taking us in this story. You see, it's only God's grace that frees us from being most concerned with ourselves so that we could truly serve one another. And when we come to the gospel, think about it. <clears throat> it's about Jesus leaving heaven, coming to earth, setting aside his glory for what purpose? That he would come, put the needs of us in front of him, die for us on a cross, three days later rise, overcoming sin, death, and Satan, so that we could be forgiven of our sins. But not just forgiven, made new, given new hearts that are filled with his love, that are indwelt by the Spirit, so that we would live the way that God calls us to. Because if, if right now the problem is the sin in our hearts, the solution is we need a new heart. But how do we do that? Through the grace of Jesus. <clears throat> In fact, even in the Old Testament, this was their hope. This is what we read in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. It says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And notice, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Why is it we will be able to walk in the rules of God? Why is it we will be able to obey God? 
because he's given us a new heart. The solution to our inabilities, to our sins, is not us trying harder, working harder. What does that do? It makes us into the priest and Levite, which their religious actions have only served to elevate and insulate them. Rather, the gospel is about showing us our inability and thus our need for repentance and our need to receive a new heart filled by the grace, love, and mercy of God and dwelt by the Spirit of God so that as we go forth and as we love others, we're not loving them with our strength and with our abilities, but it's purely because of the love of God within us. You see, the Bible... The Bible helps us to avoid the wrong thinking that Jesus died on the cross because we somehow deserved it. But rather, like when we go to texts like Romans 5, we see that Jesus came and then it describes who we are. It says, well, we were weak, we were enemies, and we were rebels against God. And it says, that was the right time when Jesus came and died for us. We didn't look good, we didn't look acceptable, we weren't deserving of his grace. That actually goes against the definition of grace. We were his enemies. It's at that moment Jesus had compassion. Just as the Samaritan had compassion on the man, it moved him that he would come from heaven to earth, that he would save us so that then we could be saved also. So then if we come back and we say, okay, so what's the answer to racism then? What's the answer to hatred and animosity in the world? What's the answer to all of the divisions that we see happening in the world? What's the answer to make sure that we as a people going forward in the 2020 election, that even if we differ on political views, that we don't differ within our, hum- our unity in Christ? Well, the answer is the gospel. The answer is it's, it's Jesus Christ. And so how will the world understand that? How does the world see that? Well, there's two ways. Number one, It's because we, the church, are are called to proclaim the gospel to others. We're called to go forth and to speak the gospel, to proclaim it. That's the role of every single one of us, to share the gospel with our words. And we've talked a lot about this. The only way our neighbors will be saved is if we use words. They will not be saved by actions. Actions are very helpful. We'll get to that in a moment. The only way they will be saved is if they hear the saving truth of Jesus Christ. Our actions cannot communicate that Jesus came, left heaven, came to earth, died on a cross, three days later rose again, and he's the son of God. Our actions can't communicate that. Our words communicate that. So the first thing we must do is we have to communicate the truth of Scripture. Secondly, we live out the very truths of Scripture. And often it's our lives that will bring about these questions. Why do you live this way? Which then provides the opportunity for us to share the gospel. But what we do is when we come to the scriptures, amen indeed, Roger, amen. What we see though is when we come to scripture is that as God's people, as the church, we're called to be what? A light in this world. Meaning we're called to be different Jesus says he comes as the light of the world, and then he says, you are the light of the world. Now, why are we lights? Because of ourselves? Because we mustered up enough strength? No, because we've been saved by the grace of God. Now the Spirit of Christ dwells within us, and thus if Jesus is light, and now his Spirit dwells in us, what are we? Robert knows. Good. We're on the page. We're light, right? 
we're lights in this world that we would live different. Not perfect, right? Not perfect. We know that. Even in our forgiveness and our repentance, we can be a light in this world. But we are called to now live in a different way. That when we as a church gather of different people, of different tribes, of different diversities even here, that it would be a testimony to the saving grace of God. That while the world would say there's many distinctions here that should separate us, we see that the gospel brings us together. You see, as the church, we're a picture of God's kingdom. We're to show the world what it looks like to be under the very rule of God, to have the very love of God dwelling within us. We're not a religious people concerned merely with outward appearances, rather like the Samaritan. We have compassion on one another, and thus we seek to serve one another who are here, and we seek to love those who are outside the church. Now, it's at that moment, it, it, gets, it gets difficult. It gets hard to figure out, well, how do we help certain people? What is the best way to go? And those are great conversations, and we need to press into those conversations, which is one reason we're doing the June 20, nope, January 21st Faith and Politics. You can come in June. Maybe we'll do it then, too. Um, but we're to come to press in on those, not for the point of growing in diversity with one another, but to understand one another, to see what God's word says, and how do we move forward as God's people with one voice, proclaiming his truth, even if it is we have different views on certain political or social things. Now, some people will say that we need to be more engaged in local missions. And I would say that we need to be engaged in local missions. But I believe one of the primary ways that we are engaged right now in local missions, and it's the church's biggest opportunity to share the gospel and to show the truths of the gospel, is through each and every member going out and living and speaking the truths of God's word. And one of the biggest things that we can do is by showing love to those who are different from us. By loving the homeless by loving those of different race, by loving those of different ethnicities, by, by helping those who are different economic statuses, by looking at what the things are that divide people in this world and how do we love one another. It's not that we affirm everything. There's a huge difference there. We can love people without affirming lifestyles, right? But we love them because we value them as people who are made in the image of God. And thus, when they then ask, why do you do this? we have the opportunity to share because this is what Jesus has done for us. He came when we were not sharing love, when we did not love him, when we were against him, that he would show his grace. And so we've learned that the truth of the gospel is not that we just serve and love those who are like us, but we love to serve those who are not like us. So we need to ask the questions. How am I loving those of a different race? How am I loving those of different sexual orientations, different political views? How am I loving the homeless? How am I loving people of different religions like Muslims or atheists? And don't, don't mistake, atheism is very much a religion. How am I loving those within the church that are different than me? Above anything, in here, the love that we have ought to shine forth out of this room so that as the world looks at us together, they're seeing a great floodlight of, of the love of Christ. If each one of us are a candle, what happens when we all come together? 
It looks more like a bonfire at that moment, right? Showing forth not, not anything in particular about us, but about the love of Christ within us. We cannot stay at arm's length with people. We cannot walk to the other side of the road like the Levite and the priest. We cannot put our hope in governments that, that they're going to solve all these issues. We are the very people of God and dwelt by the Spirit of God that we would show the very kingdom of God in this world. So I want to urge us, if our first step is just to run out and say, fine, well, I'll start helping the homeless or I'll help my neighbor and do these things, that's great. But I would say let's not let that be the first step. Because I don't want to just move us to action, that we just start doing things. We just start, well, look, now, now look at all the people I'm loving. But rather, the first step probably should be repentance of our own sin. That we are probably blinded in more ways than we'd like to think. That we probably have racial uh, or racist tendencies within us. We probably have other hostile and divisive tendencies within us that we might not be aware of at all times. We probably have divisiveness within us that has prevented us from engaging with our neighbors, from engaging with other people around us, engaging with those who are at work in our neighborhoods. The very fact that we haven't done that shows that there's something in us that has prevented us from moving forward in there. So I would say before we jump and begin helping people, which we should definitely do that, but we don't want to do that at our human, just physical effort. We want to make sure first we've repented for sin. And we want to make sure we're going forth with the love of Christ. That when people see us, they're not seeing just, wow, that person is just great, but they're seeing there's something different about them. It's that Christ is in them. And so as we're about to move towards communion, I'd like us to, to just take a few moments as, as the men come forward, as the team makes their way up, just spend time in prayer, just confessing however it is that God leads you. And then in a few moments, I will pray, closing that time, and then we will pass out the elements where we will be looking specifically at the gospel, how Christ has come to love us when we were unlovable. So take now just a few moments and pray where you're at, and then I will pray. Our Father, we come to you. And Lord, we praise you for the fact that your Son, Jesus, has come from heaven to earth to save us. God, we realize that we, we do not deserve your grace and your mercy. That, God, you would have been completely justified all the way back in Genesis 3 of just condemning the world to its sin. But rather, Lord, you began a redemption plan a plan that would demonstrate your love and your grace and your mercy. And as we walk through your word, it exposes our sinfulness. 
And Lord, we know that even as we believe in you, that we are, are saved, that we are forgiven, that your spirit dwells within us. And yet now we, we wrestle with sin. Daily we're called to put to death the sin that, belong, that dwells within us. And yet, Lord, we know that sin is blinding. And so while there are some sins that we see, there are others that we do not see. And I imagine that there are divisions and hostilities within our hearts that we're not always aware of. I pray that we would be moved to humility and that we would confess those sins to you and that we would be open to our brothers and sisters coming to us, pressing in our lives for the sake of confession and repentance. That, Father, that we, <clears throat> that we would become more like you. Lord, you have placed your spirit in us that we would be a light in this world that the way that we act would testify of your love and of your grace. Lord, may we as a people, as your church, may we not trust in the government necessarily for what you have called us to do as well, that we would be the means in which love and peace are communicated in this world. And Lord, I pray that where issues are complex, we'd not be moved to apathy, but that we'd be moved to creativity on how is it that we can meet needs? And what could we do? What is the first step that we could do? Lord, help us to be sensitive to the way your spirit moves us. That we as a church, we as your people would live in a way worthy of the calling to which you have called us, testifying of your grace. Lord, may we be known for people of compassion. Because, because you have first been compassionate towards us. And Father, I pray that as you bring us to confession, that we'd also be moved to celebration at the fact that we know we are forgiven. And so we go forth not in guilt, but in the joy of being forgiven, in the joy of knowing you are in us and with us, and that the, the success is not based upon our abilities, but upon your presence. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would strengthen us and give us wisdom as we go forth. And God, may through the works that we do, may it give rise to great opportunities to testify of the gospel. And may many people believe in you because of that. In your name, Jesus, amen. I want to go